Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Laura Silver. She is the senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. She is fabulous. Laura, take it over. Thank you so much for having me and letting me share our newest data with you. We also love data and are always happy to um, present it to interested parties. So I'm going to speak to you today about our most recent polling about American views of China, but I'm happy to speak with you about anything else you have questions about as it pertains to global views of China, which is something I also work on. Before I get started, I want to give you a little bit of background on the Pew Research Center. We were established in 1996. We're funded primarily by the Pew Charitable Trusts, though we also get some money from foundations. Importantly, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan, and non-advocacy fact tank in Washington. So we don't take policy positions and we don't make policy recommendations. We simply try and inform the public, the journalists and the policymakers about what people around the world, but in this case in the United States, think about key issues. Since 2001, we've surveyed in 108 countries. Most of my research has been on our international team, the Global Attitudes Project. And this is a survey that our team conducted, but in the United States. And everything I'm gonna show you today is available at pewresearch.org. You can download our data, you can see our graphics, you can work with our data um, to make your own analyses and inferences, which we're really proud of, the ability to share everything that we do publicly. So the methodology for what I'm presenting to you today is visible here. We did a survey between March 3rd and March 29th of 2020. So important to keep in mind the field dates. As you can imagine, public opinion is probably moving relatively quickly on a number of key issues today. One of them likely is views of China, but we have isolated data from this particular moment in time that we're excited to share with you. And we hope to keep updating it as we go along because we recognize that the coronavirus outbreak is likely to be a rapidly evolving issue for the public. The data that we have today, it comes from a nationally representative phone survey that we carried out with adults ages 18 and older. So first I'm gonna show you the overall favorability numbers. This is probably the graphic that we have that's gotten the most traction. And what you can see here is that negative views of China are on the rise in the United States. Today, two thirds of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. That's the most unfavorable we've seen in our 15 years of polling on this particular question. This is up even since last year when 60% of Americans had an unfavorable view of China. And last year also marked the historic high point at that point in time. In fact, between 2018 and 2019, the 13 percentage point increase we saw was the highest year-on-year -year change we had seen to that point in history as well. So this is not only a marked increase, it's a sustained increase of two years that we've seen. One thing we wanted to understand was whether or not views became more negative over the course of the fielding period. If you recall, the beginning of March, at least for me, felt quite different than the end of March. In fact, we declared a national emergency midway through our fielding period. One thing that's important to note, though, is that attitudes about China did not become more negative over the course of our field period itself. So people surveyed between March 3rd and March 12th, before we declared the national emergency, were as unfavorable towards China as those surveyed between March 13th and March 29th, the second half of our fielding period. Um, 
We did see other corresponding changes in opinions over that field period. For example, a different product we put out found that the percentage of people who said that global infectious disease is a risk to the United States, that did increase over the field period. But views of China did not become more negative during March. However, they became obviously precipitously more negative between 2019 and 2020 when we surveyed. Here you can see some breakdown of who feels more negatively and more positively towards China. What you see here is that Republicans and independents who lean towards the Republican Party tend to have slightly more unfavorable views than do Democrats and independents who lean towards the Democratic Party. And I'll show you an overtime graphic that speaks to this in more detail momentarily. There are no real educational differences, though, with regard to attitudes. People who have a college degree or more education are about as likely to say they have an unfavorable view of China as those with less schooling. There are very significant age-related differences, though. I'll show you an overtime graphic in one moment, but it's important to note that in general, younger people tend to be more favorable towards China than older people. This is not just a phenomenon of China, though. Younger people are often more positive towards most international things that we poll about, about foreign countries, about foreign leaders, about foreign organizations. And that the same is true here. You can see, for example, that only 53% of people under 30 have an unfavorable view towards China compared to 71% of those ages 50 plus. This is the first time, though, that we've seen half or more of those under 30 having an unfavorable view of China. Here you can see the overtime age trend. So you can see that although younger people have historically been less unfavorable towards China than older people, the two are actually moving in relative concert. You can see that as older people become more unfavorable, so too do younger people typically. And here's the overtime partisan trend that I mentioned. So as you can see, Republicans have tended to be more negative towards China through most of our history of polling. However, they continue to be more negative towards Democrats at an increasing rate in 2018 and 2019. So you can see, for example, that in 2018, there was almost no partisan difference. And in 2019, Republican attitudes soured towards China more than Democratic attitudes. We also have asked about confidence in Chinese President Xi Jinping to do the right thing regarding world affairs. He's not the only person that we asked about in this particular survey. We typically ask about confidence in multiple world leaders, including Shinzo Abe, um, um, Macron, Angela Merkel, and a number of others. But when it comes to confidence in President Xi Jinping, you can see that the vast majority of Americans at this point say that they have no confidence in him Excuse me, to do what's right. Um, up roughly 20 percentage points since last year. I want to talk about the ways that we looked at whether or not Americans perceive China to be a threat, though, because we asked about this in four different ways, essentially the issues in the bilateral relationship and how Americans feel more broadly. When it comes to a straight question of whether or not China's power and influence is a threat to the United States, and we asked whether it's a major threat, a minor threat, or no threat at all, you can see that the percentage of Americans who say that China is a major threat has increased markedly since the Trump administration began. At this point, we see that 62% of Americans say that China's power and influence is a major threat to the United States, up roughly 20 percentage points since 2017 and eight percentage points since just last year. In terms of overall threat, you can see that the relative numbers of people who say it's a major or minor threat have stayed somewhat consistent, but the major threat number has been a precipitous increase. But how does this stack up to other things that might be seen as threats to Americans? On this particular survey, we asked about a number of different issues and whether they were major threats, minor threats, or no threat at all to the United States. 
Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the climate in which we live and the fact that we are all currently locked inside our houses, whether from New York City or elsewhere, the spread of infectious disease was the thing that topped our list of threats as the most major threat facing the United States currently, with 79% of people naming that as a major threat. And as I mentioned, that increased over the course of the field period. When it comes to other threats, though, terrorism, the spread of nuclear weapons, cyber attacks from other countries, we see roughly 7 in 10 say that these are threats. China kind of comes in as a second tier issue for some Americans, but still, as noted, 62% of people say that China is a major threat, and this is significantly more than, say, the same of Russia. I'll come back to this in a moment, but there are partisan differences related to that. I should also note, as I'll show you on a subsequent slide, when it comes to issues like cyber attacks and global climate change, these are issues that people see linked to China in key respects. So here you can see the increase that we've shown over time. I just wanted you to be able to see the kind of slope of this line. As you can see, when it comes to the spread of infectious disease, that's gone up markedly since we asked about it, the first time being roughly around the time of the Ebola crisis. Attitudes towards cyber attacks have stayed relatively steady, though Americans tend to be concerned about it. But you can see kind of the magnitude of the increase in terms of concern about China's power and influence and how that's gone up since the, roughly the beginning of the Trump administration in our polling. What, it's very tough on that one. I, the 44 and the 41 percent, what years do those correlate to? Each one of these is one survey year. So, um, so 41 would be 2016? Uh, 2017. 17, 17 18, 19, and 20. And 44 would be um, so four years. So 2012 for 13. Yes, I believe so. Okay. We've also asked a series of questions about which issues are serious problems for the United States. And we've been asking this as very serious, somewhat serious, not too serious, or not at all serious. This is not an open-ended question, so Americans can't volunteer coronavirus, for example, as a serious problem. Instead, these are things that we asked Americans about, and we asked them whether or not they were serious or not. Um, so you can see when it comes to which problems people consider to be serious, that the top problem that Americans are naming as very serious today is China's impact on the global environment. 61% name this as a very serious problem. Coming right under that are cyber attacks from China and China's policy on human rights, which 57% respectively name as very serious problems for the U.S. Slightly below that are issues like the loss of U.S. jobs to China, which 52% say is very serious, and then 49% who say the U.S. trade deficit with China and China's growing military power. China's growing technological power is also named by 47%. So as you can see, most things are considered to be somewhat to very serious, with the potential exception of tensions between mainland China and Hong Kong. We did ask this survey in March. Obviously, when we designed the questionnaire, this was potentially more of a hot-button issue that we thought would get some traction. But by, by and large, this is the issue that's of least concern to Americans. Some of these have changed markedly over time, though. Here you can see some of the overtime trends, and we've been asking roughly this battery since 2012. So when it comes to China's impact on the global environment, 61% today say that that's very serious, up from 50% in 2012. This is something that we've also seen increasing as a concern for Americans writ large, but especially for Democratic Americans. That same kind of threats battery that I showed you a moment ago in terms of which threats people consider to be major threats to the United States, we've seen a very significant increase over time of people simply naming global climate change as a threat to America. When it comes to China's policies on human rights, too, we see roughly 10 percentage points more people saying that that's a serious problem for the U.S. than said the same in 2012. 
And again, we see an increase when it comes to concerns about cyber attacks from China. The two, though, where we've seen relative decrease in terms of the percentage of people naming them as very serious problems are the U.S. trade deficit with China, which 61% said was a problem in 2012, and now 49% named today. Notably, concern with the deficit has come down across the board as an issue, um, part of this potentially driven by Republicans being less likely to name it as a key issue since the beginning of the Trump administration. We also see concerns about the loss of U.S. jobs to China coming down. In terms of both of these economic questions, although they've come down significantly since 2012, the percentage of people saying that they're very serious has held roughly steady across the Trump administration. These are also relatively partisan. So you can see that in general, Republicans tend to be more concerned about most of these issues than our Democrats. So when it comes to the trade deficit with China or loss of jobs to China, these two economic issues, the magnitude of the gap is somewhat larger, where Republicans are more likely to say U.S. trade deficit is a, with China is a very serious problem than Democrats by 13 percentage points. The only issue which Democrats are more concerned about than Republicans is China's impact on the global environment, perhaps reflecting Democrats' general concerns about um, climate change at a higher rate than Republicans. Do you think, Laura, by the way, can, can I ask a question just on that chart, the, the sure. impact on the global environment? Do you think some respondents thought about that as coronavirus also? That, that, that's an impact on the global, it, it's not what you intended with the question, but could some of that increase be driven by people who interpreted it that way? It's certainly possible that they could have been interpreting it that way, but this also mirrors the concerns that we see generally with um, the increase in um, concerns about climate change and how that itself is a partisan issue. And people who are more likely to say that climate change itself is a serious threat are more likely to say that China's impact on the global environment is very serious. So they could have been thinking about more than one thing, but it roughly correlates in all of our measures with the way we intended it to be registered. But absolutely. Um, and we hope to measure something about coronavirus, obviously, going forward and have a couple of measures that we'll be releasing in the future. One last point on this slide before I move on is that the only issue on which there are no partisan differences to speak of is the human rights question, which I showed you before, um, the tensions between, I'm sorry, the tensions between mainland China and Hong Kong. So there are no uh, partisan differences on that. Another way that we've asked about concerns about China um, is an open-ended question. So we allow Americans taking the survey to tell us any group or country that's the greatest threat to the U.S. in the future. And these data, I should note, are drawn from our 2019 survey as opposed to 2020, but I think it helps to highlight some of the magnitude of the change that we've seen in terms of attitudes towards China writ large. Here you can see that in 2007, when we asked which country or group posed the greatest threat to the U.S. in the future, 12% named China. By 2019, that had doubled to 24%. And what you're seeing are the three top answers. So 24% is tied with Russia for the most threatening country or group to the United States in the future. Um, both of these countries are double the third choice, which is North Korea. Um, in terms of other things that come up, we see small numbers of people named countries like Iran or groups like ISIS or Hamas. But generally speaking, the, um, the numbers naming China and Russia are so substantially above even the third choice of North Korea, which is only 12%, that you can imagine many of the others are even lower. Once again, though, this is somewhat partisan. So in this open-ended question, the percentage, of who name, the percentage among Republicans who name China is 32%, whereas among Democrats, it's 19%. 
In contrast, Democrats are much more likely to name Russia as a key threat at 36% compared to the 13% of Republicans who say the same. No partisan differences to speak of when it comes to North Korea. And the last way that we've tried to measure how people feel about China um, in terms of its impact on the United States more broadly is this question that we've asked of whether or not China is an adversary, a serious problem, or not a problem. And once again, this is a 2019 survey, though this one is from July. You can see that roughly a quarter of Americans say that China is an adversary, 50% name China as a serious problem, and 24% say it's not a problem. There's been quite a bit of movement on this question in recent years, where particularly between 2017 and 2019, we saw a significant increase in the percent who named China as a serious problem and a marked decrease in the percent who said China was not a problem at all, even while the adversary number itself did not shift particularly substantially. And once again, partisan differences, where Republicans are more than two times as likely, or around two times as likely to name China as an adversary than our Democrats, with 30% of Republicans or independents who lean towards that party, calling China an adversary, compared to 16% of Democrats who said the same. So I'm going to stop there and take some of your questions. I'm really happy to speak with you about any of these or other trends that are of interest to people on the line. Thank you. Fabulous. Thank you. The, uh, it's great data. Uh, you kind of whetted my appetite on when you said confidence in other leaders, and you you even though this is obviously a China-focused crowd, uh, we saw that enormous uh, drop in confidence in President Xi. What happened with Merkel and Macron and, and uh, you know, Trudeau so, and others? Can you give us some data on that? We haven't released the other numbers for 2020 yet, um, so hopefully we'll be doing that in the not-too-distant future. But in terms of 2019, uh, when we asked about um, Xi Jinping compared with um, Abe or Kim Jong-un, we found that he was one of the least popular leaders, but that more people had no confidence in Donald Trump than said the same of Xi Jinping, which is actually a finding that we've gotten quite a bit of attention for, particularly in um, mainland China news outlets. Very popular finding. Have you seen this Lowy poll that came out in the last 48 hours on Australians' attitudes towards China and uh, the coronavirus? I haven't had a chance to look in detail, no. But what was so interesting is only 6% of Australians had confidence in Xi Jinping doing the right thing on the coronavirus. So I read that and I said, wow, that's really low, except 2% had confidence that Donald Trump would do the right thing. So it was, it was, it was a very interesting. Uh, yeah, um, that's definitely a, a finding that we've seen in many of our countries. People have more confidence. Uh, I guess actually, typically we report it the opposite way. It's no confidence in Donald Trump tends to be greater than no confidence in Xi Jinping in many of the countries in which we survey. When are you going to, obviously it, it, it's, Attitudes are changing incredibly quickly. When will you kind of release a new poll on new, um, new attitudes? Because I mean, the beating up that China is experiencing and some of the decisions that it is making are certainly gonna further lower uh, the view of Americans towards China. So it would seem to me that this is, it's almost like an election where the, you know, the numbers are changing quite rapidly. Absolutely. So we are trying to stay as ahead of it as we can be, or at least alongside it. So we'll have new numbers, hopefully, to be released next week, which will speak to how well China has handled the coronavirus outbreak. 
we won't have a new favorability number that wasn't included in that particular poll because of questionnaire space, but we will be able to speak a little bit to how Americans think that China has handled the coronavirus outbreak and what they think the impact will be on China's global reputation. So the goal is next week for that, and that data came out of the field at the end of last week. And how do you say, you know, I received a questionnaire from a foreign, I guess it was uh, Foreign Affairs, uh, which asked, do I think in the post COVID-19 world, is China going to be stronger or is America going to be stronger? Who is going to be perceived as the world leader? Um, will you, how does this data make you think about that? So we don't necessarily prognosticate about that in any, any way, shape or form, but we will have a question that asks whether or not Americans think that China's influence will be growing um, or I think it's whether they're influence will increase or lessen or stay about the same as a result of the coronavirus outbreak and the same about America. We also typically try and do a poll. Um, we call it the Global Attitudes Project, and we often poll in around 35 countries around the world. We had been planning actually to go to 50 countries this particular year, but 38 of them were going to be conducted face-to-face. -face. You can imagine that in the coronavirus um, Time, time period in which we live, it's impossible to send an interviewer face-to-face -face and have them knock on doors and interview people. It's not safe and we wouldn't, we wouldn't try and engage in that. So we just finished retooling our global survey for the year and we're only going to be doing phone countries, but we hope to be surveying in 15 countries in um, the Asia Pacific area where it's possible to do phone surveys as well as across Europe and then parts of North America. So Ideally, that will field this summer, and then we'll be able to report on global attitudes towards China and the United States and the balance of power, which is something we report on annually um, with the data from those 15 countries. Now, I realize you're nonpartisan, and, and you, you, rely, you provide us with the data, and we're supposed to do the interpretation. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, so I don't know how you want to handle this question. Politico released a story which contained a Republican National Committee um, memo which said don't answer questions about the try not to answer questions this is to candidates throughout the country try not to answer questions about uh, COVID-19 and how that's handled deflect it to blaming China uh, do you think that this polling kind of suggested to them that this would be a, a, an approach which might resonate with the American people and also then the Biden campaign which was all you can see has decided to inoculate itself against the tax for being, of being soft on China by trying to out-tough uh, the Trump administration. I guess there are two potential answers to that question. The first is that this is not necessarily historically a new approach to candidates at election years. My own dissertation um, focused on how China was used as a campaign issue in the 2012 election where both Mitt Romney and President Obama at the time aired ads that were critical of China or that talked about the candidate's experience in being tough on China. So although this is obviously happening um, potentially at a magnified, in a magnified way because of the coronavirus, it's not necessarily a new tactic to try and use foreign policy or being strong on an, an outgroup as a, as a tactic. In terms of whether or not it'll resonate, I think one of the things to point to is that a majority of people, um, a majority of Democrats and a majority of Republicans at this point have an unfavorable view of China. So 
there isn't a large body of people who have a positive disposition towards the country currently, suggesting that whether or not they're being led by the um, elites themselves or whether or not elites have seized on it because this is a, a popular messaging tactic. Um, either way, it likely is going to fall on a public that is at least predisposed to have an unfavorable view. Yeah. So that which leads to the first question from the audience, which is Kathleen Walsh at the U.S. Naval College, who asks, I think, similar to what we've discussed, are there any historical parallels to today's data? Yeah, so in terms of attitudes towards China, one thing I also found while I was looking um, through IPOL, which is a great, a great database maintained by the Roper Center, is that we have had other periods where there have been historically unfavorable views towards China. Um, Pew Research Center was not asking the question back in 1989, but we did see a major uptick in unfavorable views of China if you look at other reputable polling sources um, right around the Tiananmen crisis. But in terms of other historical parallels, the other ones really would be that we often see slight spikes of unfavorable attitudes right around election times if China becomes a campaign issue. This is from somebody, they're up late, at University of Nottingham, Salim Yilmaz. What are the reasons for these changes? Could you guys poll what is going on that is kind of so depressing the U.S. attitudes towards China where the, you know, obviously the unfavorables have soared? Yeah, so we are never going to be able to have causal data because we do cross-sectional research. So we're not able to say how the same people over time have shifted to be more negative or what's causing it. We simply roll out nationally representative surveys one at a time. But we can look at some of the relationships that we see in the data. And for example, the historic unfavorable numbers that we saw in 2019, we had a question on the survey at the time about whether or not people thought that economic relations with China were good or bad. Um, that was roughly around the time that we were ramping up the trade war with China um, and imposing more and more tariffs. People who thought that current economic relations with China were poor were much more likely to have an unfavorable view of China. So some of it is likely driven by our current policies with China and whether or not people think that they're successful or view China as an economic competitor. Do you have any data on, uh, this is from uh, uh, Richard Kagan, who's retired from Hamline University. Uh, do you have any data uh, regarding different minority groups' views of China? You, see, you know, you've broken it down by age, but you haven't broken it down by African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, Caucasians. We do have it, um, and it's available on our website. We don't tend to put it into the report unless there are large significant differences. And so we have tended to see relatively more muted differences and not necessarily consistent over time by racial groups. But typically, we've seen that um, Black and Hispanic Americans tend to be slightly less unfavorable than white Americans, likely corresponding with partisanship. I see. So it's, it's related. It, it's consistent with Democrat-Republican split. By and large. Um, which then leads to the question is, are there regional differences? We typically do not have a sample size that's large enough to analyze this. So this survey was with a thousand people. And so we aren't able to get fine grained enough to really look at the differences that tend to interest people like farmlands versus not. Um, so we don't have anything that we can really speak to in terms of specific regional differences on this survey. The survey that we'll be having, that we'll be putting out next week has 10,000 people in it, but we don't have a favorability question. We have simply have questions about um, how well China has handled the virus, but we do plan to look at that and see if there's anything that we can discern. Carol France asks an interesting question. He, he says, 
do, do you, he says, how many of the Americans you poll even know who Xi Jinping is? So are you saying this is the leader of China? Or are you saying is it Xi Jinping? So is this just, you know, it explicitly how many says people Chinese, actually know? It explicitly says Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's a very good question. Um, we actually find re relatively high don't knows when it comes to Xi across many countries. In the US, the don't knows are, I think, around 10 percentage points typically, which is high for some of our questions, but not as high as we see in many other countries where we poll. But it does say Chinese president, and we find a, a relatively high correlation between views of China and confidence in Xi, suggesting that even if people don't have particularly strongly formed attitudes towards Xi, priming them by saying China is likely contributing to some of the viewpoints. Why don't you ask by see several questions here? You, you don't poll Taiwan as an issue. We actually did poll Taiwan as early, as, like as recently as I think 2018. Um, it's tended to have so, it, it tends to fall kind of as one of the least serious problems for Americans um, that we swapped it out this year for Hong Kong, which we thought might be slightly more salient. With questionnaire space, we weren't able to put both in. But yes, we have asked, I think the phrasing is something along the lines of, tensions between Taiwan and mainland China, but I can find the exact wording. Here's a question about how difficult it's getting to do surveys now that landlines are becoming, of course, they're back in use. I've been using my <laughs> landline for the first time in 10 years the last few weeks. Yes. We've actually seen, seen an increase in response rates from people being home for phone surveys, which is maybe one of the very few silver linings of this. Um, yes, absolutely. It's becoming harder to reach people via landline. However, at this point, I believe that Pew Research Center does 80% cell phone contacts and 20% landline contacts for most of our, our uh, polls. So we, we absolutely recognize that and we have moved most of our phone polling to be cell phone, cell phone based. I guess people are still using their cell phones at home. Yeah. So. And I, I mean, a lot of households are cell phone only. I have never owned a landline. Well, here's Susan Shirk, who's a great friend. So this is, I think, getting you into policy. Is there, do you think that the U.S. and China should cooperate on the pandemic despite their differences? So I am not able to take a policy-oriented question. I will say that one thing we're interested in is whether or not Amer the American public believes that America can learn from other countries. And that was an explicit question that we asked that we'll be looking into and reporting out in the next couple of weeks. So we're really interested in whether Americans think that there's the ability to learn from other countries, and if so, which countries are good examples. Yeah, and obviously from my point of view is we absolutely must cooperate, uh, not in spite of the pandemic, but because of the pandemic. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, these kinds of polling numbers just scream out to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations that we need to do more about educating the American public on the benefits of cooperation and obviously the benefits of competition, but where we should be competing and where we should be um, cooperating. And that's, that is a, a critical issue, which this polling absolutely highlights. Um, did the negotiate, I guess it's hard to answer this. This is from uh, Juan Lopez who asks if did the negotiations for phase one, you obviously did this after the signing of phase one, affect people's views? Yeah, so that would be difficult for us to say with any, um, any certainty because we didn't have a question about phase one and it can't be causal data. 
But as I mentioned, the 2019 data did suggest that attitudes towards whether or not we're handling economic relations with China well play into whether or not people have favorable views of China. I can also show you, um, I don't think I'm currently sharing my screen, but let me try one more time to show you one other um, data point that may speak a tiny bit to this, which is um, we've generally seen that there's a relationship between um, how people think tariffs are, there's a partisan difference on how people feel about tariffs as well as what they want with regard to economic relations with China. So we can see generally speaking, um, and this was from a July 2019 poll, that um, support for tariffs is quite a partisan issue in the United States um, and that more people actually think that they're bad for the US than good. But that when it comes to actually how people feel about a relationship with China economically, we see more people want to build a stronger relationship with China than want to get tougher on China. Um, but this is a very partisan issue in the United States. And so Republicans are much more likely to say it's important to get tougher on China economically than are Democrats, and especially conservative Republicans compared even to moderate or liberal um, Republicans. So we definitely see that economic attitudes are partisan and are strongly related to some of the attitudes towards China that we see. Yeah, it was very interesting in the, in the Lowy poll. Um, there you had this really increase in unfavorables towards China, yet a strong support for, for further international cooperation, that there was almost a dichotomy mm -hmm. between this unfavorable view of the Chinese government, but a belief that they needed to work with China, increase international cooperation. Now, Australia, the Australian economy is obviously much, much more dependent on China than we in the United States are. That, you know, China, uh, Australia's decades of uninterrupted economic growth has very much been based upon exports to China. So yeah. it, it's a different. Shirley at Middlebury asks, do any, did you separate out Asians in your survey? And is there a different view um, of Asians towards China, or especially Chinese Americans towards China than others? We don't really have a large enough sample size in the poll of 1,000 to feel comfortable making estimates. Um, we hope to be able to do that on the larger surveys that we'll be running. But in this particular case, we, we tend not to report on any subgroup that has fewer than 100 people in the unweighted data. So fewer than, and obviously it would be, what, what's the Asian population, the Asian American population, it's like three, three, four percent, it's quite low. So you wouldn't, you'd end up, if you were doing a decent sample, 30, 40 people, so you wouldn't be comfortable making a conclusion. Exactly. Can you compare, this is from Helen Lee, can you compare kind of this to, to other U.S. president, you did slightly, but other U.S. presidential years, let's say Obama versus Bush, or even Hillary Clinton versus Trump, and how attitudes have changed after those elections? Attitudes after the elections is an interesting question. So typically the way we roll out our polling is that we do one, maybe two surveys that touch on this particular issue per year. And often our surveys are timed to the spring. So you can, in some instances, see that as before the election or after the election, depending on um, when it falls. So I'm most familiar with the 2012 election just because my own doctoral work focused on that. Um, and I will say that although China featured as an ad in multiple states as, and aired in many ba battleground states in particular, and that there were ads aired from both sides, it didn't necessarily 
um, appear as like a major voting issue for most Americans if you asked. Um, the same was true in 2016 when we asked in our polls about which issues were top of mind for people. Foreign policy is not typically a top voting issue for people. Um, we've never asked explicitly about foreign policy towards a given country, so I can't speak to that. But I would expect that foreign policy does not necessarily factor as a top choice for most people. The question then becomes, though, is coronavirus seen as a foreign policy issue or as a domestic policy issue? And to what degree is China kind of wrapped up in how people see that? And it's difficult for us to assess that, but hopefully we'll have more polling evidence going forward. Um, it's not a perfect what? answer to your, your question of historical precedent, but I'm not sure I know enough about the other election context to say for certain. Yeah, when was the last time that foreign policy was a major voting issue in a presidential election? In 2004, it registered with Americans as a very large voting issue because people were very concerned about how we were going to handle the Iraq war. Um, there's a lot of discussion, though, in academic literature about what people say is their voting issues versus what they vote on. And I'm not going to wade into that literature because it's been a while since I've um, spent much time with it, and I don't know how it played out in 2016. But generally speaking, many people believe that domestic issues tend to be kind of front and center as voting issues for Americans. And our, our rank ordering when we ask people tends to largely bear that out. Uh-huh. Now, the first election I ever voted in, I voted on foreign policy as my issue. Of Vietnam? Yes, yes. So it was, uh, my candidate didn't win. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> any polling of Chinese attitudes towards the United States that, you're, that you guys have done or you're aware of? Or? That's a great question, and you all are a great audience to speak about this. We are not currently able to poll in China because of the foreign NGO law. So because we're an NGO, since 2017 when it went into force, we haven't been able to conduct a survey. Um, we need to work with someone to be sponsored for a temporary activity permit. And so far, we haven't been able to secure a partner who feels comfortable doing uh, the type of survey work that we do. So we're always interested in suggestions about who we could work with, and we'd love to be polling in China. It's one of our top priorities, but we are currently not able to do so. In terms of nationally representative surveys, too, I'm not familiar with many that have been done in China recently. Most polling that takes place in China that's nationally representative, that I'm aware of at least, comes from reputable universities. Um, but they don't often pull on attitudes towards America or kind of foreign policy sensitive issues. Um, obviously, Beida does excellent survey work. Um, Tsinghua has some excellent researchers. But it, I have not seen anything on attitudes towards the US. and. Face-to-face -face research would not have been possible in the last couple of months, obviously, because of the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, and you didn't try. Uh, you had leaning Republican, leaning Republican, Democrat, leading Democrat. You didn't try to tie it to uh, support of President Trump, because some people may see themselves. You know, a Mitt Romney Republican is obviously quite different from a, uh, you know, a Trump Republican. Yeah, so we can see differences when we look within the ideological breakdowns of the different parties. So what we usually do is define them as, well, they define themselves um, on an ideological scale from liberal to conservative. And we typically see that more conservative Republicans are more unfavorable towards China than more liberal or moderate Republicans. Uh-huh, interesting. Now, Henry Tang asks, were there questions that delve into how the respondents formulated their opinions 
their attitudes during their life experience. So it's, it's, it's pretty much just, this is what they think, but doesn't get into, except looking at these issues, doesn't get into how they did it. Yeah, so we don't know how people form their opinions. Um, what we can see is that people who, are, who think certain problems are more serious for the United States or who think China is more of a threat tend to have more unfavorable attitudes. In 2019, when we had more questions about economic attitudes, we could see how those relate. But we don't really know, for example, are they getting their opinions from the media? Are they getting their opinions from their schooling? Have they traveled abroad and things of that sort? But typically when it comes to how people can form opinions about foreign countries, much of it has to be mediated because very few people likely have had much personal experience with China at all. Yeah. Though I, I would argue with the 350,000 Chinese students in the United States, let's say each of whom has contact with a significant number of people, you begin to actually have a base within the United States that actually has had experience uh, with China. I remain a, uh, a huge believer that yeah, after I left the government, I moved to China to work on US investment in China. So my first job was really helping to, to facilitate US investment in China. And I believe that I converted those people that I worked with into people who believed in constructive US-China relations. So each place, each place I'd go to, if they polled before and after, they would see these people were much more pro-American than they were before <laughs> I dealt with them. Or maybe I made them all anti-American, I don't know. <laughs> We should have followed you around doing surveys, <laughs> see the I causal effect. <laughs> this is from Fan Yang, who's an uh, associate professor of media and communication studies, so very much a, uh, yeah. uh, the Chinese call Nei, she, uh, somebody in the field. She's, Thank you, exclamation point. Are there ways in which your methods also allow you to learn about how China is defined in the minds of those surveys as a nation, a government, a society, a place, an origin of the coronavirus, et cetera? It's a great question. We cannot tell that from this particular survey. Um, we can say that there is a correlation between views of Xi Jinping and views of China. Um, that can also not tell you which direction that goes. Um, we can only see the correlation in these data. The, the thing I would say, though, is that we tend to see when we ask about people from a country and the country, which we've done mostly with regard to the United States, where we often will ask abroad attitudes towards Americans versus America. Typically, people have more favorable opinions of people from a country than of the country itself, which is kind of an amorphous com concept. Um, and they typically tend to evaluate leaders less favorably even than countries. Um, so that's something that we've drawn from a lot of our data um, over time. Academic research tends to show that people conflate a lot of these different concepts when they think about the country as a whole. Um, it's hard to pinpoint, and many people may have different opinions, but the fact that we see the relationship between attitudes towards the people, the leader, and the country, we always find relatively interesting. You know, I'm a huge believer. I, I, I love polling, and I every poll that comes out, I love your polling. I love a lot of people's polling. It, it's great, and it's partly it was because of my run for Congress. But... In 2016, obviously the polling was off. It really was off. So, and the check ultimately is the voting booth. But how do you kind of make sure that this polling that you're doing is right? What's, there is no voting booth ultimately yeah. for, 
this Pew poll. So um, how do you kind of check that it's correct? Such a good question. I would quibble with your premise though. Um, we have our director of methodology at Pew, Courtney Kennedy, led the task force for the American Opinion, uh, the a APOR, which stands for the American Academy of Public Opinion Researchers. She led the task force for APOR on assessing how accurate or inaccurate the 2016 polling was. The media narrative and obviously the way a lot of people felt watching election returns in 2016 was that the polls were off. In fact, nationally, the polls were more accurate in 2016 than they were in 2012. Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote by about three percentage points, and that's roughly what every major national poll had as the margin of victory. We don't unfortunately elect our president though on the basis of the same thing that we evaluate our national polling on. So the national polls were quite accurate. The state polls and then the polling aggregators were largely off and the electoral college didn't vote in the same direction that the national public did. So to, to quibble with that, we would say that our polling and in fact national polls like um, Washington Post ABC were actually more accurate in 2016 than they had been. And so we do spend a lot of time evaluating our polling against external benchmarks like the election, um, but also like gold standard polls that still exist, like face-to-face -face polls done by um, health, health organizations, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and things like that. So we try and make sure that we match a handful of these benchmarks each year, and we try and calibrate our weighting schema for what we call post-stratification weights to make sure that we are continuing to adapt as polling kind of advances. But in this case, what's your check? Our check is that other things that we ask on the survey that might have an external ground truth, whether or not it be um, percentage of people who are registered for a given party, percentage of people who simply fall into different age groups um, as it matches census statistics, or if we have a vote choice question or things like that, we try and make sure that we, um, on all of these questions that have a benchmark, are as close to the benchmark as possible. Yes, the national polling wasn't bad. I, I, I <laughs> having eating all those polls in those days leading up to the election, yeah, some yeah. of the state polls were re, were significantly off. Yeah, and we um, love and, talking and about. Obviously, this. we all know that a national poll in a presidential election, who cares? Exactly, it, it doesn't matter. Um, we love talking about this, and I'm happy to point towards some of the APOR guidance. But there's some really interesting work on why some state polls were more accurate than others. It largely has to do with whether or not the polls were weighted for education, which is something we always do in, at Pew Research Center. Yeah, I was very interested that the there is no really significant division in attitudes towards China between those, and I assume you have, if they have a PhD, an MA, a BA, or whatever, if they're highly educated or not, there, there was no, no difference. And in most years of our polling, we actually see very little educational difference when it comes to attitudes towards China, which quite honestly is relatively unique in terms of attitudes towards many things in the US, which tend to have large educational differences. Yeah, I mean, clearly the, the polling on President Trump is quite significantly different depending on your level of education. No question. It's, it's um, and employment, I mean, kind of the, the you know, what you do for a living, was that a big difference between white collar and blue collar or you don't poll, you don't create that demographic? I don't income think- levels? Income levels, we saw very little difference. Where we actually see a difference with regard to income levels in this same survey was how people felt about which country was the leading economic power. 
and I didn't show those data, but we asked people whether or not they think that the United States, China, Japan, or the countries of the European Union are the leading economic power in the world. People who are less affluent are more likely to name China as the leading economic power, and people who are more affluent are more likely to name the United States. So we sometimes see income differences, but we actually don't really see large income differences when it comes to favorable views writ large. What do you wish you polled, wish you had polled that you didn't? On this particular survey? Yeah. I mean, I, I wish this survey on favorability also had measures on the coronavirus, but we write the questionnaire. I mean, this questionnaire was supposed to be fielded alongside 49 other questionnaires worldwide. Um, it simply went into the field first. And since then, we've obviously changed what we're doing globally and changed the questionnaire. So we'll have coronavirus measures, but we didn't know what a large impact the virus would have on Americans as well as the whole world at the time that we were designing it a handful of months ago. If that data throughout March, as, as this was escalating significantly, holds, you won't see further um, deterioration in the attitude towards China. I find that I'd be very surprised if, you're, if the data, when you poll the effect of coronavirus on Americans' attitude, the anecdotal evidence to me is people are becoming increasingly negative. They're hearing uh, what's going on in the media. They're hearing what President Trump is saying. They're hearing what Senator Cotton is saying and others, and they are becoming increasingly negative. That, if that 68, boy, I would, of course, you wouldn't do this, but I can do this because I'm not a pollster. I would say 75. I can't do that, but I will say I'm very interested for the next time that we can run this poll because I think that this is a potentially very quick moving issue and I'll be really interested to see how Americans feel when we next ask them. Yeah. Um, somebody asked again on regional stuff, we've answered that. Um, do you do any online polling? Li, Lei Guang asks. So Pew Research Center does a lot of our polling online, but it's not necessarily the type of online polling that many other places do. What we do is we use something that we call the American Trends Panel, which is a panel that we ourselves built and maintain. So we actually recruited people into the panel using nationally representative methods. So we either recruited them via address-based sampling or random digit dialing. So everyone has the same, um, everyone who's recruited into it is recruited using these methods so that they didn't get to select to take the poll themselves, which we would say would bias the results. We've done a lot of work on the differences between nationally representative sample and opt-in sample. And that's something that we see pretty consistently. So we do a lot of it online, but it's with people that we've specifically reached out to in other ways to ask them to take online surveys for us. So it maintains the randomness. Exactly. Did you distinguish in the poll, this kind of gets to what I asked, which was income levels, but people who are in the business corporate sector, or are there separate polls on that? And do they have a, uh, a more positive view of China than others? It's a good question. We aren't able to get that fine grain, so we don't really know. But I would say in terms of your question, anecdotally, since we see very few differences between income levels in terms of views of China, and we see very few differences with regard to educational differences, I'm not sure I would expect, given those two things, that if we had this group of people, we'd see significant differences. Have you surveyed kind of the, the, the Republican conservative views tend to be more negative towards China? Um, you know, Keith Kelly asks, 
are they just becoming more negative towards all non-American, all countries that aren't the United States? So is there a way to measure the drop towards China um, versus, you know, Japan or Germany or Britain or whatever? That's a good question. Um, in 2019, which is where I've last looked at these data for, Repu um, for Republicans versus Democrats, um, because in 2020, we haven't released the numbers for views of any other country except for China. But in 2019, we've actually seen that um, unfavorable views of Russia have come down among Republicans, whereas they've gone up among Democrats. So it's not just that Republicans are becoming more negative towards all countries. Um, the, the magnitude of the difference, I don't remember offhand, but generally speaking, it does seem to have to do with our current policies and the policies of our leadership with regard to how people's opinions have changed. What surprised you most in the poll? Well, one of the things I thought was most interesting when it came to these data was that there wasn't a shift over the, over the March polling period. Um, when we saw the same shift with regard to concern about the global economic conditions and we saw concerns rise about uh, diseases, we didn't see the same in terms of um, concerns about China's power and influence or unfavorable views. Huh. Lei Guang writes, he's very surprised that um, China's growing technological power only registers at roughly 50% because this is a lot of the, the foundation of what the U.S. government policy changes towards China hinge on. Yeah. So one of the things that we struggled with with that particular question is that we really want to get at essentially this policy issue of Huawei and um, other key technological groups that is unlikely to be something that the vast majority of Americans have ever heard of. Um, and so we wanted to write a question that was broad enough that it could speak to general concerns about this issue without getting into a, like a nuanced policy issue that we didn't think would register with people. And so I agree. I thought it would be potentially a, a concern for Americans. And of course, there were around half of Americans who said it was very serious. But when compared to other issues, it did not register as a top concern for Americans. Which is puzzling because it really is a huge, it, it's like the elephant in the room for a lot of U.S.-China relations. When the pandemic goes away, we will continue to see this, this issue. I mean, I wonder, you know, Huawei is probably now the best known brand, best Chinese known brand in the United States, or known the most of all Americans. It's certainly not in a positive way, but... Could you, is it possible to then, uh, you know, poll people's concern about Huawei and whether they share the administration's view that this is something that is a real potential threat to America's national security? It's definitely something we're interested in. We just have to figure out how to ask it in a way that the ordinary American will be able to understand it. But we have polled, um, in 2019, obviously, we rolled out our global survey in a number of countries. And... We also saw, for example, in Canada, that unfavorable views of China reached new historic highs um, between 2018 and 2019, dramatically shot up. And while we can't attribute causation to that, obviously there were a lot of trade frictions and like the arrest um, of the Huawei executive and things of that sort. Um, so there is the chance that in some countries it's a more salient issue than in others, and it's something we hope to keep monitoring. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Chicago Council poll that was preceded yours quite by quite a while and therefore didn't have any coronavirus um, data in it, uh, had still a majority of people who had a favorable 
view of China. Also, they, they correlated that favorable view with people who believe that international trade is a benefit to, to their lives. Is that something you get, the, the second part, international trade being a benefit to their lives, is that something that you guys poll? So we have a number of questions about general attitudes to, towards multilateralism. Um, we haven't released those yet, but I will say that in past data, we've typically seen that people who are more internationally oriented measured as support for international organizations or the sense that America should be involved in helping the world solve its problems and things like that tend to have more favorable views towards foreign countries. Yeah, because I mean, the Lowy poll, the, you know, they, they yeah. China's favorability, then they polled, should we cooperate with China? Should we, you know, obviously, as I said earlier in the program, that's, they're highly dependent on exporting their raw materials to China to make for the economic growth that exists. Well, we're about out of time, but this was fabulous. We got to almost all the questions, um, and you were terrific in keeping your answers brief. That's <laughs> just the right amount of data, and there are lots of compliments that are already pouring in from people. But Laura, thank you so much thank for you. doing Thanks it. for having me. And um, we love all the books and love that, <laughs> you know, you're like living in an archive. Yeah, thank you. And please do reach out if you have other questions to people on the line that we can help answer. Um, we're more than happy to share our data with people who are interested and to answer any questions you might have. Terrific poll, terrific data, terrific explanation. Many thanks. Thank and you. Thank you all for joining us today. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.